0: My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Before hanging up my sampling can with the Environment Agency, one of my main duties was to attend and oversee aquatic pollution incidents. Often these would involve fish, either dead or dying, and in similar fashion to a police officer, I was responsible for gathering in all the relevant evidence to present a case which the legal department would then prosecute through the courts. This obviously would bring me into very close contact with anglers, who on a number of occasions would make comments such as, how do you get a job like yours? It has to be one of the best jobs ever. If I'm honest, for most of the time anyway, it was just that, a job. And like everyone else, I still pull my face on a Monday morning at the thoughts of the week ahead. But now I know exactly how those people felt, as I'm sat on the banks of the River Irwell in East Lancashire, in the company of Dr Paul Gaskell project manager for a national initiative known as the Trout in the Town programme. So to kick things off, tell us about your own background and the build up to getting yourself into contention for such an interesting, ambitious and important fishery based restoration project. It probably
1: all started with just a childhood interest in fishing really and poking around in water. and. To be honest, that, I find it really difficult, if not impossible, to actually disentangle my interest in fishing from just a general interest in biology and freshwater ecology, really. So that was a childhood thing, and it's certainly something that myself and my brother Ian and my dad would engage in throughout my childhood. And that just led on to really having an affinity with biological sciences throughout school. I wound up at A-level college doing three sciences at A-level which I don't know if, even these days, whether that's a bit more, kind of, not frowned upon, but whether they, you know, they ask you to diversify a little bit, but I just kind of indulged my interest, really. And that led on to an undergraduate degree at Sheffield University, which was uh, pure and applied ecology, and that had a lot of different, quite varied modules on biological sciences, from freshwater ecology through to conservation biology, um, but also things like biochemistry and stuff like that that it picked up as well. And really... I guess sort of after 3 years in uh, in Sheffield doing pure and applied ecology that led on straight onto uh, a job in contract research in North Yorkshire in Harrogate and that was in the area known as ecotoxicology which is kind of the the relationship between aquatic in this case ecosystems and then what happens when there's contaminants or pollutants in that system and trying to understand and maybe get a handle on the risk posed by certain classes of compound either from accidental releases or just through general usage so that covered everything from the industry producing chemicals whether that's for fertilizers or pesticides or drugs or whatever it was and that was very much centered around performing toxicity tests and bioaccumulation type tests looking at how these different compounds having a risk assessment portfolio if you like being put together before they went to market and looking at how they interacted with parts of the aquatic food chain. And then after a, a sort of a while at like that, probably got as far as I, I could in, in that field, actually ended up going back and wanting to further things a little bit and actually get a bit deeper into the, uh, the science and the primary research behind things to do with rivers and freshwater systems, and that led to actually undertaking a PhD project. That really was an examination for me on on how some of these polluting chemicals that you get in river and lake, muds and sediment, how that actually is either locked into those sediments and muds or whether they actually get taken up into the aquatic food chain and passed on through various invertebrate members of that food web and food chain and ultimately potentially passed on up to top predators as well and potentially even human food chains. But it was a very, very focused look at the things that control whether a contaminant is actually bound very strongly to the mud particles or whether it actually passes into that food chain and what the consequences of that would be. And that sort of took up uh, probably another four years. And then straight on from that, after a short spell, uh, doing a bit of bartending and that kind of thing, I managed to get myself a position in the same research group that I'd done my PhD in. And this was actually project managing quite a big body of work that lasted for five years with a budget of just shy of a million pounds to really quantify the potential risks and the impacts that are associated with storm drainage from motorway carriageways. So very often a carriageway will have a drainage system that is pretty much piped straight into the nearest river uh, and that carries a lot of road dust and other materials, the breakdown crumb from vehicle tyres and and accidental spillages from fuel, and even partly combusted components of the fuel that get deposited on the tarmac. And obviously that builds up in periods of dry weather and then when you get a storm pushing through, that material gets lifted off the tarmac and then washed into the nearest stream. So, under the Water Frame Directive, the Highways Agency was tasked with understanding whether that posed an ecological risk and then also carried with it a responsibility for them to mitigate any risks that were so identified. It took an awful lot of investigation of the communities of plants and animals that were living in streams that were receiving this kind of drainage. It also took up a lot of what we call in-situ deployments where we'd collect organisms from clean reference sites and then actually house them in small exposure vessels multiples of of these uh, individual vessels placed in the stream for a period of time both upstream and downstream of the outfall to understand both whether the chemicals that were coming off the road actually were accumulated and taken up by the uh, the beasties that we were exposing but also looking at whether there were any toxic effects on those organisms and then further on from that teasing out the very specific mechanisms by which any impact actually occurred in the laboratory, so there's a big component of laboratory exposures as well. And so we needed a team of of researchers to carry out those exposures and collate the results and uh, process the various samples for, for chemical extractions and so on. The end product for that really was for me to be able to write up at the end of it both the situations under which you'd expect impacts to occur so you could identify and predict where you're likely to see effects from uh, motorway runoff, but then to use that to be able to prioritise which outfalls you would look to mitigate first or which are the priority ones that are going to cause you problems which are the ones that are lower down the list and actually not contributing to observable effects in the stream. So it produced a tool that you could actually use to take out and look where you need to prioritise your your mitigation measures. So that was really the end product of that. And then that really was winding up where the the money uh, throughout that project was contingent on us producing particular reports and sort of making sufficient progress throughout that. So it was a rolling renewal sort of type funding. When that came to the close and we had the final sort of reports taken from that project, it was a bit of a crossroads, really, an opportunity for me to kind of jump one way or the other. And I guess it was kind of serendipity, really, that um, I happened to see an advert for the Wild Trout Trust position for their urban river restoration project manager. And it just seemed to me that it was too good an opportunity to miss, really, because it offered a very practical Opportunity to make a real difference very quickly to improving some of the conditions in the urban rivers that we've got. And it offered a nice counterpoint as well to the heavy research background and and sort of, you know, having an appreciation for primary research would allow me to hopefully distill that information that comes out of the research world and then translate it into things that can be used by people on the ground and and understood by the general community as well. So that was... um, just a really nice piece of of good fortune that that position came available at the time and I was fortunate enough to secure myself an interview, which I believe actually that um, they had a previous round of interviews where they felt there were some pretty strong candidates on paper but I guess fortunately for me for whatever reason the people who they interviewed in the first round didn't necessarily convince the interviewers that they had the right qualities to take forward the, uh, the various parts of what is quite a diverse role really and I guess I was able to convince people of uh, my passion for the subject as, as well as the kind of the background knowledge as well so it was an interesting one for me because my main background had been focused more on invertebrates in freshwater ecosystems than fish although i did take in some research that, that accounted for fish as well but i wasn't the, the kind of the typical candidate that would maybe come through a you know maybe an environment agency fisheries type background so that was a very interesting one for me and a great opportunity. And as I say, uh, hopefully I managed to convince the uh, people that I had the, the passion as well as the knowledge as well. And it just allowed me to kind of come full circle between because pretty much everything I've done, either in my work life or my academic life, it's really been centred around or driven by that initial childhood interest and fascination with fish and their habitat and the world that they live in. And that expressed in my kind of leisure time when I I had it, in the medium of actually fishing and sort of appreciating them on a very direct level. So it actually allowed me to marry two things together after taking quite a long circuitous route, investigating the various different strands, as I say, through both contract research and academic research as well.
0: So what exactly is the Trout in the Town programme?
1: It's a programme that is run by the Wild Trout Trust and it's really the Urban River Protection and Restoration Project. It was initially funded by some start-up funding by the Esme Fairburn Foundation but these days a lot of the staff time and other activities are actually supported by Environment Agency funding sources but there's some really significant personal donations as well that, that go towards funding that project. Trout the Town, it really has three major aims... There's the protection and, if possible, the enhancement of biodiversity in urban river corridors. There's the education of people in the value that these urban rivers have. And then there's the translation of that education into actually engaging people with that river corridor. So the ultimate aim is to get custodianship by local people that they feel that they actually own and are responsible for part of the urban river corridor that they live close to. The interesting thing for me is it's actually... There's only one out of the three main aims that is purely biological, which is to do with the biodiversity aspect of it. But the other two are actually much more to do with kind of social qualities and actually engaging people and educating people. So there's a massive component of the job that is actually focused around How you bring people into the equation and what they get out of it as well although all of that is of course centered around and underpinned by the uh, the knowledge of and the, the management of and appreciation for river corridors in general and the ecology that they support the other thing really as well is that there is the urban strand which is the trout in the town project for the wtt but the bread and butter really for wild trout trust is probably the advisory visit and the practical visit program and this is kind of an interlinked series of activities. The advisory visit programme basically comprises a walk and talk, if you like. So somebody who has an interest in a section of river, whether they're a landowner or whether they're a fishery owner or somebody who leases the fishing rights, or even just an interested party who has some access to and some influence over a stretch of river, will host a visit from us and we will do, as I say, a walk and talk, assess what's good about the watercourse where there are problems, identify those and then wind up with a, a written report that actually gives some advice on what to do, either a change in the management of the way that the watercourse is managed, in a lot of cases a reduction in the amount of intervention sometimes can be helpful, but the crucial thing is, is that aside from a contribution to mileage costs from the nearest staff member from the Wild Trout Trust, all of that consultation work and the report writing and, and the ongoing support work is actually free to the recipient and that's covered by the various funding strands that the wild tractors use to to further their uh, charitable interests. Now once people have received an advisory visit they then potentially become available for a practical visit which is where we'll select certain of the uh, recommended actions from the advisory visit report and then our staff will bring materials on site, they'll run it as a training day but obviously at the end of that training day the various habitat improvements or modifications that have been put in place will obviously be left there as a demonstration plot. Now obviously there's a direct gain to the, to the quality of the habitat there from that activity but the the wider gain is really giving people the skills and the knowledge to, uh, to roll that model out and to sort of continue to do that along other stretches of the river as well. So a very strong educational aspect to those practical visits as well. The main focus on both of those activities is really to identify where the habitat jumps outside of what the niche requirements are for native trout. Now there's a lot of good reasons for that but just as a few examples of the kinds of things that we're looking for, it often is associated with where the channel has been modified for some purpose, whether that's agricultural or industrial. It can be because there's impacts of livestock or other land uses surrounding that river that are degrading the, the habitat or the water quality. There's big impacts often from very dominant invasive plant species, but the reverse is often true as well. you know there might be overenthusiastic vegetation management either by fishing clubs or landowners there's a huge suite of these kind of things you know a big one for us at the moment is educating people in in the stagnating effect of weirs and barriers that actually impound water flow so it's not just a connectivity issue which people are generally a bit more um, savvy about and and sort of understand the need for migratory fish to, to get up and down river systems but one thing that is perhaps less transparent is the fact that simply actually ponding back the water on rivers actually causes quite a degrading of the habitat you know it it drowns out spawning riffles it actually slows down the process of river bed transport that is one of the main drivers for creating variety in the habitat and variety in the habitat always translates to variety in the uh, types of plants and animals that can make a living there. So that's one of the reasons why the kind of proliferation of the idea for micro hydropower schemes is potentially a really damaging thing that people are not really appreciative of because in a planning application for a hydro scheme you can um, obviously elect to install a fish pass and then assume that that's taken care of all of the potential ills that that barrier might pose for the the ecosystem. And actually the most significant effects are not mitigated by fish pass solutions simply because it it doesn't address any of the the degradation of the actual habitat itself that's imposed by the weir. So that's going all the way around the houses. The big thing, I guess, about both the advice that we give in the advisory visit reports, but also the training that we give in the practical visit, it can be just as much about what not to do as the things that you actually positive go out and and try and put in place. And that's a really, really key thing. And The the driver behind all of our advice is really introducing and, and maintaining as much ecological process within the channel as possible. And that's the key thing because there's so many things that go on within channels that uh, drive the way that these systems work that really depend on the quality and the connectivity of the habitat as well as things like the water quality, the surrounding land use and so on. So it's a little bit like um, the three legs of a, a milking stool really. Without either water quality or water flow it doesn't matter how good the habitat is you're always going to have you know a degraded system but similarly you can have great water quality but if your habitat is absolutely rubbish and uniform then that river corridor is not going to be supporting the range of species that you'd be looking for and this of course applies to fish as well and it's one of the things that really speaks to the heart of the Wild Trout Trust is that this idea that trout and and any fish or any species do not live in a vacuum they are the products of the quality of the ecosystem that they exist within so Although we're called the Wild Trout Trust, the idea behind it is that because trout require clean water with good flow regimes, they also require a great deal of habitat diversity because the different stages during the life cycle of a trout requires things like shallow riffly sections, some deeper pool areas for adults, but it also needs mixed cover and sort of complex structure and different flows and depths for the various juvenile stages as well. So when you put all that together and then consider that you also need a really robust invertebrate food chain to actually feed the things. That starts to bring in the fact that, you know, these invasive plants can really degrade that food chain aspect of the process. They can also degrade the quality of the habitat just by promoting runoff of lots and lots of sediments into the river. So you soon start to see that because trout do not exist in a vacuum, because they're a sort of a top predator, they're pollution sensitive and they require varied habitat, managing appropriate rivers for the benefit of native trout actually does a pretty good job at managing for overall biodiversity in uh, river corridors, and that's true whether it's in a rural environment or in an urban environment, and that's really why we centre our activities at the Wild Trout Trust around our native brown trout. And it, it speaks again, interestingly, to the urban side of things, to the Trout in the Town project, because... Trout are classically associated with these crystal clear, rural, sort of idyllic streams. They can seem a little bit incongruous in these urbanised city environments. And it's actually lovely to play with that and and surprise people by the life that is actually existing in a lot of the uh, town and city centres. I would say actually that the more I do this job, the more I realise that it's kind of the exception that you don't have uh, wild trout in in urbanised rivers than the rule. There's a massive disconnect, though, because most of the people living around those rivers, just they still perceive them as the industrialised and the polluted and the degraded systems that they were. Even 20 years ago or 15 years ago, a very, very recent history, a lot of these systems are extremely degraded. But with the dieback of industry and some improvement in water treatment and also just appreciation of how we treat rivers and doing a little bit better at, at that... It actually means that there's a lot of urban river and small streams and watercourses of all kinds that actually hold wild trout. And a big part of my job is actually to get people to uh, realise and understand and
0: appreciate that. But why should the public be bothered or want to get on board?
1: It's a really good question, that is actually central to all of the activities. I've spoken a bit about the fact that because these wild creatures can be a little bit incongruous and can be surprising to people that they can find them there... That's one aspect of that, is actually when people realise that it brings about something to be proud of in their community really. There is actually, again, just going away from purely personal experiences of people sort of getting benefits out of improved biodiversity and, and the presence of wild fish in their rivers, There's a massive body of research that was done by a project called Ursula, which was, I think, something along the lines of urban sustainable living agendas. And it was a big multidisciplinary effort that tied together ecological surveys with a a really large amount of sociological research as well. And one of the things that they demonstrated was that there are actually significant and profound mental and physical health benefits from actually improved biodiversity in urban areas. And that the river corridors acted really as as very um, central locations for those kind of benefits to be realised. It even translates into things like property values and that more diverse and, and more naturalised and more biologically varied River corridors actually translated into people being willing to pay a bit more for rent or for buying properties that are associated with those environments. So there is actually quite a, a strong social stimulus and driver to both actually care for the biology itself but also to let people know about it and connect people with it. So there's a huge sociological benefit from that. But even broader than that, it is actually crucial that we do understand how we can develop sustainable businesses that don't destroy biodiversity. There's quite a wide-ranging perception that biodiversity and conservation is a thing that's a luxury and it's a nice to have once we've taken care of industry and businesses and jobs and that kind of thing. The problem is that the illusion that we have in society that we are kind of the masters of the natural world rather than a part of it. And there's a huge problem with the misconception that doing business and doing industry and living at the expense of our natural resources is not a sustainable way to go. It will actually bite us on the backside at some point, and that could be in the form of various natural disasters, which you see across the news, but also just things like food security and that kind of thing. And when you drill down into it, you pretty quickly get into this idea that has been, uh, I guess, packaged as as ecosystem goods and services Uh, and that is there is the idea that when ecosystems function well and towards their maximum capacity they provide an awful lot of things that are essential for the future of of human existence. And that's quite a big idea, you know, it's it's a huge thing but looking historically it's clearly the case and That whole idea centres around the knowledge that the way that ecosystems actually function, the things that they do, is on some level actually linked to the structure of them. So the individual components and the constituents and the members of those ecosystems actually contribute to the things that they do. So some of the things that they do might be to mitigate floodwaters. So you could have a system at the top of a rain-fed river system where instead of what we used to have would be uh, extensive wetlands and uh, peat bogs the draining of those peat bogs to extract the peat and use it as a fuel actually removes that huge sponge effect at the top of the system and that can make rivers much much more what they call flashy so they respond to rainfall much more quickly and they shoot up very quickly and the floodwater peaks are much higher as a result and then that causes flooding further downstream and Going back to the, you know, the, the trout in the town and why people should be bothered, nearly all rivers that run through cities that I can think of don't solely run through an urban environment, so they'll pass through both rural and urban sections. So unless we are to understand how these things function at the catchment scale, so from source out to the sea, and try and actually work with them rather than try to contain or control or degrade in some way... It actually shoots ourselves in the foot to try and do that because working against the forces of nature are, are always much greater than, uh, than than we can impose as kind of a human society. So that whole view is really not very very widely appreciated. And there's an interesting current case at the moment whereby the uh, ability for landowners to perform their own dredging and watercourse maintenance is uh, being pursued at the moment. Now the problem that I foresee with that is, is that the people that are being asked to undertake that maintenance don't really understand the processes of fluvial geomorphology or other relevant aspects so they don't really understand even the impacts that they're likely to have at the local scale on their own land but they certainly don't understand what impacts they'll have both upstream and downstream of those works when they're carried out and the consideration for the biological component of that will be much much lower down the list as well so whether you look at it from a purely functional and a floodwater management point of view, or whether you look at it from a biological point of view, we're living in interesting times at the moment because deregulation of a lot of that kind of thing could lead to some really quite significant unforeseen consequences, I think. So taking it back to the original question, why should people care? I think People would do a lot better at being able to make decisions about how their policies and how the politics in general is uh, actually enacted if they understood more about the issues and the vital role that river corridors play both in urban and rural environments. And it has to start young, you know, it has to start with classroom projects so that people gain an appreciation and understanding of that. People have this aspiration that, they, you know, they want a clean environment to bring the, the kids up in, potentially... But just switching kids on to the fact that nature and the things that surround them, whether they're in urban environments or out in the middle of the country, actually has a value. And then conditioning people to actually expect that this environment should be of good quality rather than of a degraded quality is super important. And it's something that we can do, and and we have been doing to a degree, and we're hoping to expand on it by actually taking activities and initiatives into classrooms. So one of them we have is Mayfly in the classroom, whereby kids will collect a small number of mayfly larvae and this, these are mayfly from all of the upwing species not just the classic one that we, we anglers always associate with trout fishing and actually just borrow them for a couple of weeks while they mature and actually metamorphose into the adult forms they get to learn a lot about the life cycle of the the beasts while they're doing that but also again because none of these creatures exist in a vacuum they have to also understand what conditions need to be provided by the rivers and by the streams that these creatures live in so they understand about how to actually promote the ongoing existence of the mayfly the whole food web that they sit within and so that's one small thing that we're trying to do towards that whole appreciation and education aspect and it it seems from the feedback that we've had both from the teachers and the classroom assistants and the pupils and the parents of the pupils it's been sort of boringly, I suppose, sort of 100% positive, and people have got a huge amount out of it. And uh, starting to see things, and little messages coming back, such as kids actually getting onto the parents to help clean out the litter in the local watercourses, so they make it nice and clean for their, their beasties that they've just invested some time in actually caring for and, and promoting. The really nice thing about making the classroom well, there's two things. One is it's extremely cheap. It's maybe sort of in the region of 20 to 30 pounds for a school to run it. But also, because it features a release of those adult flies that the kids have actually cared for for a couple of weeks, they're to revisit the river and actually put them back into the system that they borrowed them from and sort of having a better understanding of that system the second time they come to it to put the flies back compared to the first visit where they're learning that there's actually things that live and wriggle and, and thrive and, and have life cycles under the surface of the water. So it's a very neat little project and, and it does, as I say, it helps to start conditioning people to expect to have good water quality and good rivers compared to the current, I guess, perception in urban areas that all these water courses are degraded.
0: For the sake of those people with no formal scientific training, in layman's terms, can you clarify for us the impact sediment transport and removal caused by a river works has at a biological level?
1: The thing is, when you have a, a channel that is formed by the processes of erosion and deposition of that watercourse itself. It actually does a fantastic job of producing exactly the right dimensions within that channel to maintain the maximum amount of biodiversity and and process, but also to function as a channel uh, in and of itself. So when you take the dimensions that the watercourse has set up for itself and then you change them by increasing the cross-sectional area, i.e. by dredging sediments out or whatever it is and digging deeper areas, the system then will respond and try and reform itself into what it feels the correct dimensions should be. So when you do that, for example if you dredge an area, a section of stream, you might even straighten it at the same time, but let's say you just remove some of the, the, uh, the riverbed sediment increase the capacity. The idea is it'll take more water away more quickly. But what that will do is it will actually produce, uh, or it will tend to produce, a demand for a supply of more sediment from upstream. So this, this idea that nature abhors a vacuum there is a great potential that what it will do is it will try and gain that sediment from further upstream, which can actually lead to some pretty severe erosion and changes to the watercourse and changes to how the banks collapse or or whatever upstream of that point. And that, that can be a long way away from the point that you're actually working on. Strangely as well, by doing that, by interrupting that transport of material, where you've dredged the stream bed away that reduces to a degree the amount of material that will be transported downstream. And that uh, lack of that material can actually promote erosion further downstream as well, which can, re- you know, if, if you're upstream of, uh, of an urban environment and you're getting floodwaters bombing down through a, a channel of larger capacity and that kind of thing, you can have some really damaging effects from that. And just purely on the basis of a biological standpoint you know raking material out of the stream bed takes everything that's living in that stream bed out and puts it on the banks where they're not really adapted to, to to survive very well when it gets into actually straightening water courses and taking them away from the natural course then those effects tend to be magnified again you tend to increase the amount of water that's flowing through a straight section and it's going at a, a hell of a pace when it comes to the end of that so when it comes to the next part of the river that hasn't been modified it'll tend to bulldoze um, its way straight through the the next sort of bit of soft banking that it comes up against. And uh, again, lead to some really unpredictable and pretty wild effects of the channel. And ultimately, it's not even getting the flood risk benefits that you're looking to achieve because you're sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul. You've removed one section to try and improve the conveyance, but without really having any understanding how that's going to affect how both water and sediment is transported both upstream and downstream of that reach. So it's very concerning.
0: What about the shorter-term effects of mobilising trapped pollutants, colouring to the water and smothering out bottom living animals and fish's gills? Is that a concern as well?
1: It is, although I would categorise those kind of effects into more acute and probably things that maybe could be recovered from more quickly, albeit, you know, potentially quite damaging. I think some of the other effects where you actually changing the, the regime of head-cut erosion upstream of the point where you're doing the work so likely to have much much more extreme and unpredictable and consequently more damaging effects. Admittedly you might have some shorter term biological effects that are certainly undesirable but probably more recoverable from if that's a phrase than, uh, than some of the more significant effects where you're really destabilizing the way that the, the hydrology works.
0: And can I suggest, with your angling hat on now, the potential there with the job also hasn't slipped by unnoticed.
1: Not at all. And I think genuinely, and this is not just me kind of towing a party line. I genuinely think some of the best wild trout and grayling fishing that I've taken part in over recent years has actually come from urban rivers, and that speaks to several things. That I mean, first of all, that the water quality has improved, out of all recognition sort of over the last 20 years or so and essentially particularly with the trout what's happened is they've tended to hang on in headwater populations that were in parts of the river system that were too small to be exploited by industry but then as water quality has improved they've simply followed that wave of improving water quality further downstream and they've reoccupied the the habitats that they would have previously been common in before the, the great explosion of industry. A massively interesting thing for me is is that because these are rivers that have extremely fragmented ownership, they're not generally leased or run by fishing clubs because it's too difficult to arrange the permissions and the various things that are needed to put together a kind of a meaningful club lease. They're also away from land that is managed intensively for agriculture. And what has tended to happen is that A lot of these urban watercourses have benefited from what I like to call sort of benign neglect, really. In contrast to a lot of open and heavily grazed or heavily forested rural landscapes, you tend in a lot of these urban river corridors to get quite a well-established, mature woodland corridor with a nice mix of different species and a nice variety in in the height of canopy that you're getting a nice variety in the kinds of insects that are dropping in from the surrounding land as well as hatching out from the river. And on top of that, there's not the overly picky bank management and sort of heavy mowing of verges next to the river as well. And again, that's not only providing food for trout and grayling, it's also providing a lot more refuge and and lie sort of areas for trout and grayling. And this actually has a huge benefit to the carrying capacity of that section of water. So. This kind of benign neglect that's not been impacted by various kinds of land use and hasn't been overmanaged produces these fantastic fisheries in a lot of cases. And a really interesting one for me is is that they haven't actually been impacted by heavy stocking with farm reared fish as well because there hasn't been a perceived need to support the stocks there. And actually you see again that with catch and release fishing, and that's extremely important in this context, with catch and release fishing with good fish handling and barbless hooks, you can have incredibly productive urban rivers. And and I know of several, without naming names, I know of several where it is perfectly feasible to go out with a fly rod, and if there's fair conditions and a good hatch on, you can quite conceivably, and this is without exaggeration, have 100 fish days, catch and release days, where you, you, you catch 100 fish on fly release them they're all wild and there's no stocking there are some superb angling opportunities in a lot of our urban rivers provided that they are fished for responsibly and that people aren't going and filling carrier bags full of dead trout or the fish for pike dead baits or for supper or whatever it is where things have been overlooked and forgotten that is certainly some of the best fly fishing that i've had in in recent years and i'm fortunate enough because of the work that i do to have reasonable access to some pretty special fisheries in all kinds of environments and these urban rivers stand up extremely well to, to any of those so it's a wonderful resource and it's one that we actually need to wake up to the fact that we need to be doing better to protect it and make sure that people have the right skills and education to actually use them properly and to propagate that to the wider community we need to kind of get away from the default setting that if somebody catches a surprise trout that The knee-jerk response is to knock it on the head and take it home for supper as a bit of proof. I think we need to get away from that because nowadays the the pressure just due to the population, and and I mean in our lifetime, Phil, we've we've seen a doubling of the population and that is a really significant um, increase in pressure that we put on our natural resources. So in the same way that in the past school children collecting birds eggs might have been a perfectly sustainable and a perfectly laudable way to interact with the natural environment and sort of stimulating an interest. Simply because times have moved on and that pressure becomes unsustainable, we need to now start thinking in terms of uh, many wild fish populations, in terms of the, the default being catch and release, and the level of understanding that you need to have to actually work out whether taking fish and actually managing that and taking them for the table and understanding how many rods are actually pressuring a particular wild resource. The amount of information you need to do that to any degree of success is, is huge, so you're much safer going for the option of defaulting to catch and release, appreciating the resource for what it is. You know, you're not really doing it for a meal at the end of the day. It, it kind of misses the point that, you know, trout are much more valuable, much more enjoyable aspects. To having a quick close-up encounter with something as wild as that and then letting it swim off and go and reproduce multiple times in the future compared to just using it oftentimes it'll end up as fertilizer in the garden as well you know because you don't get around to eating it or whatever it is and i think that's it's not really a good use of, of that resource so we need to put that message out here there's some fantastic angling experiences to be had we as anglers need to be doing it as well as we can so that we can continue to enjoy that and our kids can continue to enjoy that into the future as well
0: One aspect of fly fishing particularly suited to physically tight, narrow and difficult to access locations, and one I know which you are very keen on, is Tenkara fishing.
1: I think being keen on it is possibly a slight understatement, and and it's... If you'll indulge me for a second, it's quite a complicated picture, because... It is a very, very effective way of fishing, and there are certain advantages to it. So, particularly if I'm using it in a work context, if I'm trying to engage kids with the urban river corridor environment, it's phenomenally well suited to that because it's a fixed line style of fishing. There isn't a great complication with the amount of line that you can get wrapped around rod rings or what you need to be doing with your left hand. You're just concentrating on one hand at a time. And for that reason, it can be good for people that have mobility issues and need, you know, wading staff or other kind of um, physical support to get to the riverbank and to get into the angling side of it. And also, it it is possible with a decent guide, you can get most people from having never held a rod before to tying a fly to catching a fish within a very, very short period of time. So if you put a a rigged-up tankara rod into somebody's hand on a fairly productive river... With a guide that knows what they're doing it's more than conceivable that you can get people into fish within sort of 10 minutes without having started it having said that because it is so simple it focuses you so tightly on your skills that to actually get any good at it it could potentially and um, take several lifetimes to actually explore adequately all of the skills and the techniques that you need to use so paradoxically because it is so simple and you don't have lots of gadgets and you don't have different weights of flies you don't have different densities of sinking lines you're constrained to a particular length of line to fish with it forces you to major on your river craft, and that for me is a delightful kind of um, aspect of it because it's a bit like there's quite a resurgence in cycling at the moment for riding bikes without gears because it's just direct drive it's you doing the activity in a very pure way and tinkara has that in spades it majors on and it focuses and exposes really quite brutally your skills base and it focuses entirely on that even to the point that a lot of tinkara anglers they'll certainly carry a very reduced selection of flies some anglers are happy with just one fly pattern in a couple of different sizes and the focus that they have is in what they actually do with it rather than gizmos and parts of the dressing that get a fly to behave in certain ways so it forces them to appreciate where they need to stand how they need to relate to the currents whether the currents are upwelling and propelling the fly toward the surface or whether it's downwelling and dragging the fly deeper into deeper lying fish And it makes you look at a river with, with fresh eyes but, but going back to things that are advantages again because of that you can take a group of school kids or even kids that are not really well uh, entrenched within the mainstream education system and you can sit them down, tie a tinkara fly, which is just feather and sewing thread on a hook, which anybody can do, and actually then go and turn over stones in the river and say, look, you know, these are the things that that are necessary for fishing to happen, this is the food source for the fish, and without this you don't have any fishing experience. You can relate the fact that the simple flies, they have a slender body, which most insects do, and they have some things that stick out, whether they're legs or wings or whatever, which most insects do, the crucial difference is, is that you can't go out and create that angling experience by chucking loads of ground bait in. And there are some, don't get me wrong, there's some absolutely fantastic angling development and angling activities where kids are being introduced to the value of rivers by doing it. But for me there's a nice, really lovely additional aspect that some kids may respond to more positively, which actually, it again, it, it completes the circle because you go from the fact that you can't create a fishing experience without the actual habitat that will support the food chain. As part of your angling experience, you imitate that food chain, and then when you do that well, you get the reward of of actually catching a fish. And so for me, that's a a much closer stepping stone to conservation and custodianship than something that you can just create out of thin air, which is potentially the case when you get away from fly fishing. And again, for urban fishing, Tinkara, there are some advantages because the very very high quality rods that are available they telescope down to typically around about twenty inches you don't have a reel, you don't have to thread the rings every time you set up so if you're kind of bushwhacking your way into a pretty inaccessible bit of urban river a short telescopic rod really helps not to get tangled up and then obviously when you're down in the river corridor you can extend it to its full length and get all the advantages of that and actually return to a way of fishing that is entirely comparable with the stuff that um, charles cotton and isaac walton were doing you know fishing long rods light casting lines that propelled these unweighted flies using the fly casting loop and so it's just a very pure and a just deeply deeply aesthetic and, and lovely thing and it is surprisingly adaptable as well you can use them on on larger rivers and Personally i I've, I use casting lines up to about thirty feet long with maybe seven or eight feet of tippet in some conditions, which again it certainly is a very, very accurate, tight and dynamic fly casting loop and it, it is it does not rely on just windmilling some weighted bugs out on the end of a, a piece of nylon. Right down to very, very short casting lines for more confined conditions. And it just has a huge amount of just deeply pleasurable things. I, I think When you ask somebody what they like about fly fishing, when they talk about the casting and the accuracy and the aesthetic pleasure of that, and the delicacy of it, Tenkara has all of those things, but it has it in spades. And I'm kind of sounding like an uh, evangelist a little bit here, but it really does have that really special kind of distillation of what fly fishing is all about. And it does great things for your river craft and it gives you great transferable skills for for any of the uh, river fishing that you're doing. You know, some of these things that the the Japanese masters have been doing for eons, they didn't have access to weights to actually take the the flies down to the fish. So one of the ways that they solved that problem is by developing casting strokes that allow just the fly to land on the water and actually create a disturbance, a bit like if you do any predator fishing, you know, you see sort of... um, bait fish scattering on the surface is is a classic thing and then fish coming back to mop up the dead and the dying or or caddis sort of skating across the water is another classic example but doing that to actually draw the attention of a, a deep lying fish to the surface but not allowing your fly to lay on the surface long enough for it to be taken and then after five or six repetitions of that actually letting your drift develop This is one of those techniques that I sort of saw it written down and to people talking about it and just thought it was absolute nonsense. But I've been out and I've tried it hundreds and hundreds of times now and actually it is an absolutely viable technique. It produces fish from sections that you will have fished through really diligently with dead drift and with an unweighted sort of wet fly for no response from the fish. And then you're taking two and three fish out of the same section by using this what they call sutabari technique, which is to use these sacrificial or throwaway casts to just have the fly scratch the surface briefly and then let your real drift develop. And that, for me, that sort of thing as a massive fly fishing geek is just deeply fascinating and deeply satisfying. So yes, on the one hand you can list all of the advantages of it, you know, you can control the line, you can avoid a lot of drag simply because you can hold a lot of the casting line off the water, but beyond the pure, ruthless effectiveness of it, it's just deeply pleasurable and... It gives you all sorts of opportunities, you can fish western styles on it, that you know the stuff you're already familiar with, or if you're sort of, simply sort of um, geeky bent to myself, you can look at what the, the traditional Japanese uh, methods are and try and incorporate those and understand those. So you've got a lifetime's worth of discovery disguised in the simplicity of what is just a rod, a casting line and a fly. And it's that paradox, it's five minutes to learn and a lifetime to master. So I just, yeah, I can't say enough positive things about it.
0: Obviously, the project is ongoing and still has more to achieve. So what does the future hold?
1: Current state of play is we've got, give or take, around about a dozen projects spread across the UK. Clearly, the obvious thing to do is to try and bring it to more towns and city centres as and when we can, and we're sort of working positively to do that. One of the things we are doing, I'm in sort of discussions at the moment with some people from the Midlands in actually developing a package of stuff that we as the Wild Trout Trust can provide to them in order to support some of the existing community projects that they've got that are going on around urban river corridors already. There's the perennial issue of attracting the funding to do these things, so, you know, one of the slight disappointments that we had last year was that uh, we put together a very ambitious bid in partnership with... Get Hooked on Fishing, and also a social research group called Substance to actually develop and then roll out a programme of reaching communities that are maybe at risk of youth offending or, again, not necessarily well engaged with the mainstream education and using angling and Tinkara specifically to produce a kind of an accredited programme that people could go through and then become sort of peer-to-peer mentors to help train other people of the same age and produce basically a pathway into paid employment but through doing that. Now the funding bid for that has actually suffered a few teething problems so hopefully, I'm not completely giving up hope, that that may come about in the future. That remains to be seen but... It does flag up the fact that attracting funding and doing innovative things is an ongoing process. It never stagnates. You have to keep uh, continually innovating in order to get the support that you need and to, and to continue doing the stuff that uh, you know is getting the results that you're after. We just had a meeting with the board of trustees last week, and one of the things that we talked about there was could we put in a funding bid to actually obtain some motion tracking type camera or, or maybe even chemical logging data that we could then supply to urban projects that they could monitor combined sewer outfalls with. So we could pick up some of these instances where the untreated sewage is maybe coming out during a rainfall event, but at a time before the rivers actually had time to respond and provide the dilution that's supposed to be there. And um, there's quite a lot of cases where you have this raw sewage going into rivers but because there's a, the response time between the outfall and the river itself, you can have a very, very toxic plug of material going down before the dilution arrives too late in the day when uh, the, the, uh, the toxicity has already occurred. So this is something, again, it may happen, and hopefully, listening to this in the future, it might be something that we've been providing for a long time, but right now it's one of the several ideas that, that we're, we're looking at. And another big one for us is actually providing workshop days where we attract both local community members but also people from bigger either regulatory or conservation bodies so people within the environment agency or their local equivalent or wildlife trust personnel as well as local residents and people and volunteers that are keen to get involved and actually doing a real intense one or two day course where we go through a whole lot of restoration techniques and train people up getting people the skills that they need but also crucially showing people that are responsible for providing the consents for these kind of activities what we're actually talking about when we put the paper applications in. So it it makes that a little bit less onerous and a little, little bit less scary for people to actually consent these processes. And it helps even with things like distinguishing material that is sensible and useful to actually remove from a flood risk point of view if there's ops delivery guys going out, taking material out to protect against flooding damage versus either installed material that is perfectly well-secured and not providing any flood risk, or also naturally stable material that, again, is providing a really, really valuable habitat resource but is not actually providing any flood risk. So, again, these kind of ambitious workshops where we get very dispersed and diverse rather groups of people together demonstrating techniques and crucially explaining exactly the rationale and the understanding and the science behind it all so that people can get a really good visceral grasp about the function of these activities and the variation and the processes uh, around that as well. So that's, that's another thing that we're looking to extend certainly more into the urban environment as well.
0: And also its most notable successes to date
1: one of the most significant things that we've done certainly is to every two years so far we've held what we've termed a conclave of urban river heroes. So we've got together two or three key members from each of the uh, Trout in the Town branches around the UK, we've put them up in accommodation, we've got them together to exchange ideas and support over a few beers and in a very informal environment. We've backed that up with the opportunity to give presentations and kind of more formal exchange of information. And then also we've tended to do things where we've run sort of training activities as well. So it's like a full weekend of an activity and the reports that we get back from the people involved with that is you know, hugely inspiring. I think it helps because they can actually pick up the phone to each other and, and some of these projects predate the actual Trout in the Town project. So there is the established groups that have obtained a little bit of technical expertise and sort of specific advice and support from the Wild Trout Trust, they've been going at these projects for more than a decade and some of the new guys on the block, maybe just picking up the baton, they can actually pick up the phone to other members of the network and say, how did you deal with X Or, or I know you had this problem three or four years ago and what did you do about it? So that actually having that conclave, putting the people together and then getting some really top-flight experts to actually talk to the groups as well as just having the group's experience itself, I think that is a really significant achievement. And again, it, it goes back to this idea that two out of the three main aims with trout in the town are to do with the people rather than just the biology. I mean The biology is crucially important, but the urban conclave is, is, a, is a fantastic thing. The specific um, restoration projects that we started to get off the ground that, you know, I'm extremely pleased with, for me, going back to where I was born in Wigan and actually working on the River Douglas there was, you know, a massive thing because when I was growing up, the jokes about the Douglas fishing for bites That was the best you could hope for, and, you know, if you did catch a fish, it would thank you for sort of taking it out of the the horrible dirty water and that kind of thing. The fact that there's wild trout starting to regain a foothold in that river and that I've contributed a small amount to that and I've put some better habitat in there is a massive thing for me, and uh, that actual direct action of improving habitat and improving the diversity of the opportunities available for wild fish is is a huge thing. So those were probably two top picks, I would say, for me. So, yeah, let's just hope that we can keep on doing that and keep building on those successes, really.
0: Obviously, there is still a long way to go, and not only in the strands of the project already up and running, but also in the potential to add many more strands to it as and when funding opportunities arise. And when it happens, that will presumably also involve taking on more staff, which has to be an incentive to others to do whatever it takes to get themselves into contention, as I feel sure many will want to do, particularly through the outreach aspect of getting into school classrooms and grabbing students' attention from an early age. Meanwhile, the more practical habitat advice and restoration work goes on. Why should city centre streams and rivers be effluent channels or rubbish dumps, and why should potential fish habitat be deprived of the main ingredient in the recipe, the fish themselves? My thanks then to Paul for highlighting the very important work undertaken here by the Wild Trout Trust and its partners, both for the rest of us and for the future.